The idea of engaging with community has come up often in this series. As several guests have shared, we do not have to be alone in the midst of our suffering. And today we're going to hone in a little more on this idea of community. But instead of exploring what it looks like to engage with community, we want to press into what it means to engage as community. The stories we've heard make it clear that suffering exists all around us. While we've noted the value of somebody seeking community when they're in the midst of suffering, what could it look like if community actually came to them? How might we see the power of God at work if we, as a body of people, chose to step into spaces of suffering? What if we engaged it as community? This is something that our guest Blaine Lay has had to think about often. For the past several years, he's been providing leadership for the Richmond Christian Leadership Initiative, or RCLI, an entity that seeks to equip the body of Christ to discern how to seek the thriving of the city of Richmond together. Personally, RCLI had a tremendous impact for me as it really honed this idea of engaging the suffering around me as part of a community. And I believe the more that we embrace this idea of functioning as a body, we'll see the power of God at work in and for those around us. You're listening to episode 162 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you for this opportunity for my friend Blaine and I to just have a conversation about you. And we have thoughts. There's a lot of things we don't have thoughts on, but ultimately we've both experienced the way that you are inviting us as a body to engage spaces of suffering. We want to give this time to you, our conversation, our words, our thoughts, our questions. We give it all to you and invite the spirit to move because ultimately we know that you can do abundantly more with it than we ever could. All this we pray in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Blaine, I know you, but other people might not. So for those that are listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? First of all, thank you for having me on. What would I want people to know about me? My hope is that on my best days, I'm a person marked by wonder. I hope. I think that's what I aspire to. Do I live into that every moment? I don't think so. So I think my friends that probably know me well... I hope that I'm known for sort of thoughtfulness, but also absurdity and ridiculousness. And sometimes that can turn on a dime. So my hope is that I'm thoughtful and ponderous in the right ways, but also lighthearted. My hope and my aspiration is that that would come out of a realization that God's good, that we have a lot to be thankful for, and that, you know, when I'm tempted to live my life thinking I'm entitled to something or deserve something, I can say, man, Mm -hmm. this is actually a really good life that we've been given It's not amazing or perfect, but there's a lot of reasons why I couldn't be here. So I think cultivating that sense of gratitude and faithfulness through a sense of wonder, Mm -hmm. I think is what I would hope that people would know about me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I was going to say that until you asked me the question, but that's, yeah, I think that's the first (laughs) thing that comes to mind. (laughs) I love it. It's beautiful, the things that can come out. (laughs) Yeah. What an interesting question. I wonder how your listeners would answer that. Like, what would you want people to know about you? I don't, let me think about this for a second. (laughs) That's the homework assignment, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that we are talking today, in addition to us just being friends and enjoying conversation with each other, is about a month ago, God brought you to mind specifically as I was processing the closing out of this Sitting and Suffering series. And it was interesting because, you know, the topic of community has come up often. And a lot of times the idea is when you're in hardship, know that you're not alone and seek out community or embrace community. But what God brought to mind is that there's this deeper level too that 
Scripture calls us as a body to actually step into the hardships of the world, the suffering of the world, to go into the spaces where people are hurting or wounded. That's something that we are aware of, but aren't always working into our lives. And so this idea of how do we as a community engage suffering, I thought could be a really beautiful conversation. And what was clear to me is one of the reasons that God brought you to mind is because of your role leading RCLI, which is the Richmond Christian Leadership Initiative. And RCLI is something that I actually had the opportunity to be in the inaugural class of back in 2007. Oh, nice. You're like, a, you're the OG. I'm the OG back in the day. And my friend Dan Case and I were actually below the age limit and we were somehow able to sneak in. So we weren't even supposed to be there, but lo and behold, we made it into the inaugural class. <laughs> and RCLI has been doing amazing things ever since. I know what RCLI is, but maybe we'll start there. What is RCLI and why does it exist? Yeah, it's a great question. The purpose of RCLI essentially is that we're aimed at the health, the thriving, the goodness for Metro Richmond. So the R in RCLI is Richmond-based, Richmond-centric. The way that we do that is through equipping Christian leaders for their spheres of influence, right? So whether you're at home, at work, out in your community, how does what happens on Sunday connect to the rest of life? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to do that. The thing that we're probably best known for is our intensive nine-month leadership program. It's called the RCLI Fellowship. So people like you and me, Paul, apply to get into that program. It runs for nine months. And the program is really designed to help shape emerging Christian professionals and leaders. We think about shaping them, I'll call it heart, head, and hands. So who do I need to be? What do I need to know? What might I then go do? And I think the main outcome of the program is really just helping people of faith find themselves in the story that God's weaving here in Metro Richmond. Hmm. And I remember when I did RCLI, one of the things that I loved about it is I thought I understood some of the challenges in the world, some of the hardships, some of the opportunities. And after those nine months, I came to realize how little I actually either knew or how only surface level I understood them. Because each month we would dive into some different topic, education or the criminal justice system, a whole myriad of these spaces in which there were limitations to the community of Metro Richmond to be able to thrive. There were challenges, there were obstacles. And then we were presented with this opportunity to not just recognize it, but we as a body are now saying we are willing to say yes and step into these spaces. What I love too is I also found this freeing element where you may go through these topics and feel very strongly about one. Like for some people, it's education. This is the space that I know that God has called me and equipped me and has invited me. But then you might have another that you're like, I don't have strong feelings about this, or I don't have the knowledge base to engage this. And what was so beautiful about this RCLI community is I might not feel as strongly about this other thing or might not have the skill sets, but my brother or sister over here does. And how can I come alongside them as they engage this space? So it gave this collaborative, holistic understanding of what it means to step into this space rather than our normal, what do I know, what do I like, and what can I do? We had this idea then that you and I know that Richmond has had many challenges, many obstacles, many struggles. In your experience of RCLI and just you as a person, what has it been like for you to have to become more and more aware of all these different topics, all these different areas, all these different levels of hardship, and to have them before you? How has that impacted your walk as a Christian and engaging in serving in Richmond? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think candidly, it's been a bit of a journey. 
for those of us that grew up in the faith, I think my conception of faith was that Christianity is so that I have an insurance plan when I die. Mm. So that if I got hit by a bus, I know that I'm going to heaven and I've checked the box and I'm good and I'm on the team. But I think as I've grown and learned and sat under preaching and just been in community, my sort of the aperture, if you will, of mm. what the gospel is and what the Bible's talking about, instead of you're looking through a telescope in a really narrow way, my aperture has gone, it's widened, almost like you're sitting on a blanket in a park where it's wide open. There's a park in Richmond called Chimborazo Park, mm. which I'm like imagining the difference between looking through a very narrow telescope and sort of sitting on a blanket on your back looking at the sky. So I think for me personally, what the gospel means and what Jesus is talking about and its implications for life has really widened in a way that I think has been really life-giving for me as I think about work life and family and community and the books I read and the way that I went to a concert the other night and the way that I experienced that. And it's like, oh, the Omago Day is right here in the room and this music is amazing. And, and so I think for me, seeing the interconnectedness that God cares about all of that stuff, mm -hmm. like he cares about the public education system in the metro region, cares about corporate strategy at CarMax. He cares about river guides and the quality of the water of the James River. He cares about the design of an art gallery. Like all these things, that there's not a hierarchy where one is better than the other, where, you know, Paul, if you're a super Christian, you'll be a pastor mm -hmm. or you'll be a missionary or you're working the, and then, well, if you're sort of second tier, still pretty good, you'll be a nurse mm -hmm. or a teacher. You'll do like a helping profession. And then at the bottom, you'll be a banker or you'll work at like some kind of corporate company. Yeah. And so I think as I've grown and learned that like God doesn't see what I would call a hierarchy of vocations or that he cares about one sector of Richmond more than the other, but actually all this stuff matters. And so organizationally and the way we design our program is that we're agnostic to what sphere of influence the Lord's calling you to, but we do want you to have a sense of the overall picture of what's the narrative arc of scripture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about some of the history of Richmond, let's apply that and let's look at it through the lens of some of these sectors that you're talking about, like education, like housing. But yeah, we've had corporate strategists from CarMax and from Capital One that they might not work in education. Mm -hmm. So do we say, well, actually, you're a second class citizen. Right. Sorry, corporate strategist person. And I say, no, no, what we're talking about applies to you too and how you think about the ways that you approach your work, the way that you're working with your team. And so my vision and understanding of what the scriptures are talking about what the gospel is has broadened and it's widened and it's added more richness and I've seen more connectivity between all the parts and pieces. Yeah. There's two really beautiful things in what you said. One that I think needs to be said more is the affirmation of who God can use and where and how he can use them and acknowledging that we as people as Christians often, as you noted, limit it. We will create in our minds that this is where the super Christians live. And then the more and more you get closer to secular roles, the less and less <laughs> faithful right. you are. And, and it's just not true. I mean, scripture doesn't even support that notion. And so it gives this freeing element that somebody can actually be a meaningful part of what God is doing in the world, even if their job on paper seems to have nothing to do with the gospel. Right. The second piece is this invitation that regardless of what we've experienced, we have this opportunity to broaden our understanding of what those around us are experiencing. And again, that's what RCLI did for me and my classmates right. is it introduced us to all these different areas, education, race, criminal justice. Then the running joke was people would often leave those weekends saying, I felt like it was a fire hose <laughs> Yes, because there really is so much. In fact, it's too much for one person to capture. 
And this brings us to this other part of what I believe RCLI does, but really more broadly for those that aren't in Richmond, what God is inviting us to. And that's this idea that we're not meant to be functioning in silos. Mm. We're not meant to be functioning as our own islands, but we're called to function as a body. Yeah. So, you know, what has God taught you about that through your experience in RCLI, through leading RCLI, or just in life about how it's not a singular invitation, but we are invited to function as a body? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is the way that that looks vocationally, mm -hmm. I will say. So for many, that concept of there's many parts of the body, it's biblical, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've got ears and feet and hands and metaphorically. I think when I thought about that growing up, it's like, ah, oh, you've got hospitable people and thinker people and sort of the gifts. But when you think about the life of a place, what does it look like vocationally? So how do we need different people that are doing different things? So you and I, we spend most of our hours at work. And so if the gospel doesn't have some kind of relevance to what we're doing for 40, 50 hours a week, however many hours that may be, then I don't know that it's relevant at all. So I do think that it's deeply relevant. And so if you think about, so here in Richmond, they've been talking a long time about this massive development where there's a big baseball stadium in the mm -hmm. middle of town. And so how do we think about that for the health and the wholeness of our community for everybody? You know, if you zoom backwards, when the highway was built in Richmond, it went through and decimated certain communities. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to go back to the 1950s, and I'm sure a lot of the people that played some kind of a role in highway construction or even going back further to the early 20th century redlining in Richmond, where if you were a person of color, you couldn't get access to capital and you couldn't get a mortgage on a home. So if you were 1925 and you were going to church on Sunday, but you happened to be a mortgage maker or a marketer or a real estate agent, how does what Jesus is talking about connect to your vocation on Monday when you're making that decision about mortgage loans for the life of your community? What does the kingdom of God look like? So that was, you know, almost 100 years ago now. Mm. And so on the one hand, describing that idea of the different parts of the body and how it connects to the life of a community, it's heartbreaking. There's a lot of brokenness in Richmond, like a lot of American cities and like cities around the world. I don't think this is specifically an American thing necessarily, but sin is in the world. It manifests in individuals like you and me, but it also comes to life in systems because individuals are a part of systems. So the heartbreaking thing is, oh man, there's some stuff that's really jacked up, mm -hmm. right? That The seeds of which were planted long before you and I showed up on the block. Mm -hmm. But the encouraging thing is that you and I can now play a role in what this place looks like 50, 100 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Is that a longer time frame than most people are considering? Yes, it is. But <laughs> the best time to plant an oak tree was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The second best time is today. And so when I think about this idea of the different parts of the body, it's woven into the fabric of our life together. Mm. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, it brought a verse to mind, which I'll share in a moment. But, you know, somebody could hear what we're saying, could broadly think of RCLI and come away with the notion of, oh, well, basically this is saying let's get more Christians into more spaces and then more good things will happen. Well, the fallacy in that is that that assumes that back when homes were destroyed, when this road was being built, that everybody working for this highway plan, none of them were Christians. Well, I don't think that's true. I think there are probably people that had a desire to love God and love others. But what gets tricky is there's so much that we don't know. And then we're just operating. We are always operating from what we know. And if there are important things that we don't know, we could actually be causing harm and causing damage. And of course, there are people that will overtly cause harm and damage. But there are also a lot of well-meaning people that don't realize either the role that they're playing 
or the opportunities to care that they are missing. And the verse that popped in my mind is Philippians 1, 9 and 10, which says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, I feel like this is a beautiful part of what something like RCLI can do. It gives people who are desiring to love the opportunity to deepen it with knowledge and with discernment. And so as people are coming together and hearing about the history of Richmond or hearing about what's happening in the public school systems or hearing about whatever it is, if this is new information, (laughs) then their capacity to love is going to be deepened because now they're having this new knowledge that can flesh out what love looks like, what it doesn't look like, what is needed for love to be felt. And it deepens our understanding of discerning because whereas somebody may have said, oh yeah, highways would be great because we could get from one place to another faster. When they learn what those highways will cost in terms of people's homes, they'll have the discernment to say, but is it worth it? Could there be another way? And so I love that piece and what you were sharing that it really emphasizes the fact that the more that we can learn and learn together, the higher the capacity it is for us to live into these callings to be Christians in whatever space that we are. Yeah, that's well said. And even as you're talking, so one of our organizational values is this idea of love your place. Mm. So in order to love a place and serve it well, and not just love the experience of the coffee shops or the great restaurants or the parks, but to actually act on its behalf in a way that may cost you something. If that's love, that's the way I love my wife or my brother or my friend. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to actually care for a place, to love a place in that way? And I think to love a place well means that you have to know something about it. You got to know about the story. You got to at least be fluent in some of the parts and pieces so that you know how to love and serve well with wisdom. Mm -hmm. Information is one step along that path. It's not the only thing you need, certainly. I think with Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, who talks about this idea of proximity, Mm -hmm. that I don't think you can know Richmond only by looking at PDFs and almost at a distance. I think the more that you can kind of get close to, the better, whether it's just getting to know your neighbor or learning about a particular school or a particular workplace or a particular community challenge. I think it's by getting close to getting proximate to people to really understand. I think that's a really, really critical first step. I used to be a brand strategist and we wouldn't just say, oh, this is what we think the problem is. Like, let's go find a solution. We would say, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. And companies do this all the time, whether it's quantitative data or qualitative data, talking to people, interviewing them, really understanding like, hey, what is it that you actually need? Yeah. What's the true issue here? And I think you can only do that by getting close. Yeah. So we had this element then of getting close so that you can more deeply understand the person or the place or the people. And then there's this other element that we've talked about. You know, you talked about how to love your wife, it requires sacrifice. And it made me realize the other element of this is when we think of in terms of our kids and how to love our kids well, for you and I, we recognize that it's in partnership with our spouses (laughs) that we're able to really love our kids well, because we're both aware of the times that we may not have the gift set (laughs) or the knowledge base for that specific situation that our kid is in. Mm. And so in partnership, my wife and I are able to walk alongside our oldest child. And when he has a challenge, you know, whether it's tag teaming or (laughs) working together, we're able to love him in a deeper way. Now, single parents, of course, can love their kids well. Even the single parents I know share the value of when a friend comes alongside them in that journey 
or a family member or a parent or a grandparent, because the reality is raising kids takes a lot. And this is why there's that phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. An individual can pour themselves into something, but when that individual doesn't have to do so alone, when there is somebody walking alongside them with their own unique gifts and skills, something beautiful can happen. Something bigger can happen. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody could hear that and say, sure, yeah, I can get behind that. But then they think about all the challenges in their area. They think about all the struggles. They think about the hard history. And somebody can be left feeling, oh, man, you mean all of that stuff's going on? Is there any hope then? Because yeah. even one of those seems like too much, but you just listed 10, 20 things. Is there hope? Well, Blaine, is there hope? Yes. <laughs> it's a great question. My short answer is yes, there is hope, but it's okay if you have days where you doubt whether there is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a Christian leader now, like officially on my business card. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't used to be that. And I'll confess that I have days where I'm like, does all this stuff really hold water that we're talking about? And mm. I forget which disciple, but there's that moment where one of the disciples is having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus is talking to him. And there's this moment where he says, essentially, like, I don't have a plan B. Like, there's no backup. Mm -hmm. I feel that way often, but I do think that, I think that the Holy Spirit's real. I've had enough experiences that I couldn't fully explain. I'm like, oh. mm -hmm. And then I think even the narrative of scripture and even just some of the things we believe, I think it's true and they endure. The other thing that I would say around hope, I was telling a friend the other day, is that I think the church, particularly in America, but even around the world, I think it's undergoing a pretty big shift, mm. even as we speak. I think that 2020, Paul, for our generation, is going to be like our 1968, where there was a lot of things were coming to a head. Yeah. You know, it was almost like this fulcrum on a seesaw that I think when I'm 60, 70, 80, Lord willing, when I make it that far, like I'll look back and be like, yeah, 2020, like that was a moment. And yeah. so I think that how we respond as people of faith is still almost sorting itself out, almost like imagine a sandbox and you're stirring the sand. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not what it was and it's not what it will be. So I think that we're living through and participating in a moment of change where I do think a lot of people are asking the question that you just asked, yeah. which is, is there hope? Is this real? My days are hard. You can look at the numbers around anxiety, depression, isolation, polarization, and you and I also know people in our lives and maybe have experienced it ourselves where you just have dark days. Mm -hmm. And so my hesitation when you initially asked about the way that I heard kind of the, the question for this particular episode around community healing, I heard like, what? We got to do stuff. Like the community <laughs> needs things, There's a lot, which I think is true. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor that came to mind was this idea of, we'll call them boats and fleets. I don't know a lot about the nautical world, Paul, but if you're in a fleet of ships and you're trying to get somewhere, the health of one of those ships actually translates and contributes to the health of the other. Yeah. And so a fleet doesn't sail as smoothly if one of the boats is broken. And so I say that because for any of us that feel compelled to do something when you're just overwhelmed, there's a lot of needs outside of your household and probably inside of your own house and your family. And mm -hmm. that can just be really, really overwhelming. All the things that we've experienced the last few years in our public life and in our personal lives, like I think a lot of people are just tired and worn out. Mm -hmm. And so to do the work of the healing and the brokenness that's out there, I think we have to start with what's in here mm -hmm. because you can't give what you don't have, right? This is the old, when you're on an airplane, yeah. they say, put your own oxygen mask on first and then help your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so it's not sustainable 
to try to put the oxygen mask on everybody else if you're not able to breathe yourself. And so I think for a lot of us, if we're thinking about what are the problems out there, I think it has to be an inside-out work. Like you, mm -hmm. don't, you don't have to fix the whole world. It's not sustainable if you try to. And if you're not in a good place, go get some rest. Mm -hmm. Read a book. Mm -hmm. Like take a nap. Like go for a walk. Figure out how you can find pockets of rest. And then as you go, I think the community discernment piece is really, really helpful that we can help each other to get healthy. You don't have to do it alone. It's actually better if you don't. There's a writer, Parker Palmer, who I believe came out of the Quaker tradition. He tells this story where he was considering becoming this university president. And he realized through discernment, they would have these meetings where his friends and folks in his community would just ask him questions. Mm -hmm. And he realized through that discernment with his community that he just wanted to have his picture in the paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he was mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, man. Maybe I should just be a writer because I was kind of aiming for the wrong thing. Right. To sum all that up, if you're listening to this, you realize there's some needs out there, but you're tired and you're worn out. I would say take the time that you need so that your tank is more full and do that in the space of community to the degree that you're able to and realize that a lot of what we're talking about is a much longer kind of thing that I don't think God calls you or me, Paul, to fix all mm -hmm. the world's problems tomorrow. Yeah. And that's actually freeing. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to note because our tendency is to go big, go hard, fix everything. And that actually can cause some significant issues in a number of ways. One, as you've noted, to our own health in general and the health of those around us. If we are driving too hard, if we're burning ourselves out, that's going to impact us and those around us and then impact the very thing that we thought <laughs> we were there to fix. And, you know, you and I know there are so many entities that we're trying to do a good big work, burnout happens, and then nobody's doing the work. And sometimes that can actually create a void that didn't exist in that way before. So there could be that level of harm. The other thing you noted that the spirit can work, <laughs> the spirit can move. And so sometimes the situations may be beyond our capacity, but nothing is beyond the spirit's capacity. And so we see that in scripture so many times where a group of people were in a hopeless, impossible situation, and then God thundered and saved them. So that can also happen. We could see no way forward and we choose to remain and step forward nonetheless, and then God moves. But then there's this other scenario, like we see when the Israelites are in captivity and we love to pull the passage of, for I know the plans that I have for you, but what we don't often think about is that that passage was said to a group of people that were in captivity and would remain in captivity for another 70 years. In other words, it wasn't the quick fix, I'm going to give you the perfect life. It was an invitation to be faithful in the midst of the hardship and the struggle. So we're seeing all of this, right? This reality that there are many hard things happening around us, that we have this opportunity to learn more about it, to be willing to love and step in, but also this awareness of knowing what is our role in that. Because I know for me personally, the last four years, God's invited me to a space that's on a very micro level. And I function in a country that is all about the macro. What are your numbers? How many offshoots of your nonprofit that you started are spreading across the country? Like, how can you show that you're producing? But to your point, Sometimes what God's inviting us to is in that micro space because we have no idea what seeds he could be planting that could go beyond our best harvesting plan. And when we do that in community, how that suddenly spreads everything even further, even if it's not in ways that we could expect. Yeah. Now, 
Somebody could be listening to all this. Maybe they're, they're tracking, maybe they're on board and they're thinking, man, I would love to step into this space that Paul and Blaine are talking about, but I don't live in Richmond, so I can't do RCLI. But this isn't a long RCLI commercial, right? So what does this look like for somebody who is somewhere else that doesn't have some formalized group that's saying, let's look into what's happening in our area. Let's gather together. How can people step into this space of engaging suffering as community when they're not even sure where to start? Yeah. My first thought is that if you are in Richmond, you can apply to the RCLI <laughs> yeah. fellowship. But I think to your question, the very first thing that comes to mind is make space for other people and ask good questions. You know, we live in a world where for all kinds of reasons, we're more isolated than we've ever been. A lot of American adults now, I can't remember the exact number, but a vast percentage of men and women say, I don't have a good friend that I can trust. And so if the best discernment happens in the presence of others, you have to make time and space for it. I read a book recently. It's a book called 4,000 Weeks, kind of around time management. Mm. But one of the points that he makes is he talks about the ways that we approach time, particularly in the U.S. He used this metaphor where he says in the Soviet Union back in the day, and back in the day was under communism, mm -hmm. the government would assign people to these three different shifts. So there would be eight-hour shifts. So you'd kind of be shift one, shift two, shift three. Paul, let's say you and I were best friends, and I was in shift one during the day, and you were in shift two at night. We would never see each other. Yeah. So that's idea one. The second idea is he talks about this idea of time as a network good. So money is a resource that if you have more of it, the better. Mm -hmm. That's great. A cell phone is a network good. It doesn't matter if I get a thousand cell phones. The value of having a phone is that you have one, Paul, mm -hmm. and that my friend Sam has one, and that my wife has one. I don't need to hoard cell phones because it's more valuable. That's a network thing. The value comes from other people having one. So I think time is the same way. This is the point that he makes. And we often think about time as a resource like money that I need to hoard it for myself and try to stack as much of it as I can. I'm protective of it. But the value of time, particularly when we talk about ideas around community, is that other people have it too and that it's available. And I say this as someone on a recorded conversation mm -hmm. that like, I'm not very good at this. I mm -hmm. wish I had more time for my friends. We make time for the things that are important. And so this is something that I've just been working on. It's one thing to say, like, make time and get together with somebody, but it's another thing to actually do it, particularly if work is full, if you have young kids, or if life is just full for any reason. So my very simple thing that's very hard to do is make time for others and ask good questions. Yeah. And I think the second part of that, the ask good questions, it's one thing to get together with a friend and watch the NBA playoffs or play golf. It's another thing to actually engage in a more meaningful way and to be thoughtful about some of the questions you ask. Particularly for men, we're just not good at this. I don't think that most men immediately go to thoughtful questions. They might yeah. say, hey, man, what's been going on? Or how's work? Yeah. But that's a different kind of a thing right. than saying, well, how, how actually do I want to spend this time? What's this next hour with my friend who maybe I don't see that often? Yeah. What do we need to be talking about thinking through? I've kind of tried this a little bit to be more intentional with friends. And at first, even people that I know really well are a little bit weirded out by it because <laughs> We're not used to that level of intentionality or thoughtfulness. Yeah. And I think at first, for some people, it's weird. Yeah. But I think if you can build a rhythm of like, hey, let's get together. But I'm actually bringing a few questions that either I'm working through or I want you to think through and having that time be just a different kind of space. Now, definitely still watch the NBA playoffs <laughs> or play golf or do the thing that you do. But also just making space for friends and asking good questions, I think is half the battle. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because you're right. Like there can be these moments where that type of engagement can seem awkward and out of place, but we'll accept it in something like a formalized program like RCLI. 
But the reality is what's happening in RCLI doesn't have to be restricted to a program. You're making this really important point that it can be placed into our everyday life, learning more about what's going on around us, learning about the people around us, being engaged with the people around us, actually connecting on a deeper level. And yeah, I agree. If we all did that just a little bit more, we'd immediately start to sense value from that. Yeah. My friend Sheila Battle talks about this question, what is mine to do? Mm. That for people of faith that are following Christ and believe in the Holy Spirit, to sit with yourself, to take a pause, to create some space, say, what is mine to do? Mm -hmm. Just that question alone has been really instructive for me. And I'm a learner. I love learning. I realized I fill my life with a lot of noise and it's actually, it clutters my brain and I'm not able to focus on what it actually has mine to do in this season, in this day, in this hour. And so I think to the extent that anyone's able to narrow their focus a little bit mm -hmm. and actually say like, hold on a second. Maybe I don't need to scroll through Facebook. Maybe I don't need to click those next three links on this particular news story that is just fueling my anxiety that I actually don't have that much control over. Right. What are the things that I do need to be focusing on? Mm -hmm. What are the people, what are the topics, what are the areas of interest that are mine to focus on what is mine to do. So I think that's just been helpful for yeah. me uh, as a little bit of a clarifying question. That doesn't always mean there's a clear answer. A lot of times I might be like, yeah, I, I don't know, or I'm still figuring <laughs> it out, and that's okay. But yeah. I think giving yourself the space to not feel like you need to do all of the things all the time or to go to every social engagement or birthday party or public event, mm -hmm. but really just saying, okay, what is mine to do? And it's okay if what is yours to do today is rest yeah, or take a walk yeah. or Pop that bag of popcorn and eat it while you're watching the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as we start to wrap up, let's say somebody's listening who feels like they're in the midst of all these hardships and challenges that we've discussed many areas are navigating, and they feel like they're sitting in a space of suffering. If you could encourage them right now, what would you say to encourage them? I'm tempted to not be trite, hmm. and whether they know me or not. Does a disembodied voice on a recorded thing help? <laughs> I mean, I would say a couple things. One is reach out to people that you know and express that you're in that place. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest thing about being in what I would call the valley is just feeling like you're alone there. Yeah. And so this podcast might not help that much, but if this causes you to pick up the phone or text a friend or a family member and say, hey, can we talk? Like, I just, I need to process some of this. To me, would be step one. I think secondly... If you're in the valley, there's a good chance that a day will come where you won't be in the valley. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the moments where I have a bad day or I haven't slept or even, you know, a couple days or weeks where it's just like, this is just heavy. Yeah. I have to remind myself that a day will come where it probably won't be heavy. And I think that is helpful to know. And then for people of faith, if you're a Christian, I think sometimes we have an expectation that we're going to walk through life and things won't be hard. Mm -hmm. implicitly maybe we believe that the gospel when you accept jesus that like life's gonna be as smooth as a runway and you're gonna be the airplane taking off and uh <laughs> i just i don't see that right like yeah. I, I think the path of christ is one of suffering and sometimes that suffering won't have meaning in the moment i think other times you might look back and say oh i didn't realize it at the time but this is what god was doing the verse in he i think it's the beginning of hebrews 12 mm -hmm. where I think this is right after the great cloud of witnesses as Jesus for the joy set before him endured. And so it's encouraging to me that Jesus is both the way and also the model that his life wasn't perfect. Yeah. There was a lot of suffering. He endured. 
you know, he was filled with anxiety at moments. You think about the Garden of Gethsemane and let me not do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do it if you want me to do it. But take this cup from me. So mm-hmm. I think in many ways we'll all have a cup to drink with death and anxiety and depression and things that will hit you directly or someone in your family. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in that space, know that God's in it. I don't think God promises life will be easy, but he promises that through Christ he will be with us in it. And so I think to the degree that which we can remember that our expectation for what suffering is, what it does, that if God is the one that moves near, like Emmanuel is God with us, right? Mm-hmm. That what does that look like to do that with others? So I would just say, remember some of those concepts from scripture and the life of Christ and just reach out to a friend Yeah, and also maybe just take a nap, yeah. just take, a, take a walk around the block. Sometimes like even for me, like getting up and just like going for a walk, mm-hmm. breathing the air, being in your body and remembering, okay, yeah. this is hard, but this is not forever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to text my friend now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good step in the right direction. Yeah. If somebody wanted to learn more about what you're doing and about RCLI, how could they do so? We have a website on the internet. Uh, so rcliweb.org. We're getting ready to update our website in the weeks to come. Mm. And also, if you're here locally in Richmond, we'd love to grab coffee or get to know you better if you're thinking of applying to our leadership program. And then we're expanding outside of the program in the months, weeks, years to come. Yeah. So we'll be offering events and content and those kinds of things beyond and outside of our leadership program. So if you're interested in our program or you went through it, we're offering some things beyond the program. But I would say that our website is the best place to go. If you want to stay connected to hear about things we've got going on, we put out a newsletter that's focused on Richmond and just, hey, here's five things that are interesting. Mm -hmm. I would say staying connected through some of our email communication is the best way. And we don't blast you because nobody likes spam (laughs) and we don't like to do that because life is already full. Yep, yep. Well, I will say as you know, one of the inaugural class, mm. I highly mm. recommend RCLI. And if there is anybody that's pondering it, I would say take Blaine up on his offer to sit and have coffee, especially if you're like, well, I don't know if I'd be a good fit. Instead of assuming, just go and ask and he'll let you know. Right? Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that there's so many opportunities to step into this space. But for those that have the capacity and are in the place to be able to be a part of the fellowship, oh man. It's a nine months that will definitely positively transform how you understand God, yourself, and community and what it looks like to step forward. So Yeah. Come party with me, man. Yeah. It's today I've been a bit more of this blame, but the program's really fun. I think it's thoughtful, it's rich. Mm-hmm. I try to keep it fun and interesting. So I think we always want to make sure that the thing itself is engaging. And so yeah, I'm not always you know, let's talk about <laughs> suffering and the healing of the community. Mm-hmm. So I think the program is a bit of the both and yeah. there rather than we're stroking our beards right. and saying, hmm, let's talk about highways. It's like, no man, let's let's go for a walk. What's going on with let's have meals. There's the both and yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for being yeah. <laughs> a distinguished alum of our program. You know, checking off my alum box. Have I told people about our... No. <laughs> yeah. And I can attest, both Contemplative Blaine and Energized Blaine are both fun Blaines to hang out with. So mm-hmm. I'm no stranger to a, like, a mullet wig. Oh, nice. Yeah. We need a little mullet wig in our life sometimes. Yeah. You so. gotta, I have a costume box at my <laughs> house that um, has still made its way through many sort of home cleanouts. Yep. Probably three plus wigs. Yep. My favorite, oh, I'll end on this one, is a feathery... Think a mullet, but not too grungy. It's more of like a Farrah Fawcett kind of feather, feathery on top with a couple. It's mostly brown and it's got some highlights. Mm-hmm. It's a great look. I played poker with friends <laughs> recently and I wore said wig during the entire game. Yeah. 
Who doesn't love that? Yep. Well, I'm in solidarity with you. I've got three costume bins. There is at least one mullet wig. So you're not alone in the world. Yeah, I think the big takeaway here, Paul, is that if you're going through a hard time, don't underestimate the joy that a wig can bring. <laughs> you will walk, you will Isaiah 58 gives a powerful challenge for us to engage the suffering around us as community. The whole chapter is worth you exploring, but I want to jump in at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is a clear and vital invitation for us to engage the suffering around us as community. And it's reiterated by Jesus when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah before others, exclaiming what he came for. We also hear him emphasizing this in Matthew 25 as he talks about the sheep and the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Isaiah and Jesus both knew that suffering existed in the world, and they knew that there was a clear invitation for us to love others, to serve others, to come alongside them in the midst of their suffering. And this can be difficult. It's not without sacrifice. But it is clearly called for throughout Scripture and demonstrated by Jesus. The truth is, we are invited to engage the suffering around us as community. But as Blaine made clear, this is not to be done out of our own knowledge or our own power. When we step in, we are invited to do so through the wisdom and strength provided by the Spirit. I think of Elijah, who we've shared multiple times, hit such a low point that he wanted to die. But because he was still willing to be used by God, 
God brought about an opportunity for him to not only save the life of a widow and her son, but to bring them and others to a place of thriving. This was not by Elijah's power, but by his willingness to serve. God is inviting us to love others by being willing to be in the midst just as he is in the midst. And as he loves and works, we can be conduits of his grace and power. So often we have prayed for the suffering of the world to end. But what if God intends to bring part of that solution through us? Are we willing to engage as community together through the leading and empowering of the Spirit? Because if we are, I do believe we will see God at work in the midst. So consider how God might be inviting you to step into the midst of the suffering of another and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation, but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible. Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what Revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal Revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free. Get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?